Cause to me they're all the same I hug them and I squeeze them They don't even know my name They call me the Wanderer Yeah, the Wanderer I roam around, around Hello, this is William Chamberlain with another edition of Legends of Film. Today, Clint and I bring you an interview with writer-director Philip Kaufman. Mr. Kaufman has directed such films as The White Dawn, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, The Wanderers, The Right Stuff, The Unbearable Lightness of Being, Henry and June, and the upcoming HBO film Hemingway and Gilhorn, starring Nicole Kidman. On Saturday, May 12th at 2 p.m., the Nashville Public Library will be showing Philip Kaufman's The Great Northfield, Minnesota Raid. More about that later on to the interview. My first question is, The Great Norsefield, Minnesota Raid was an original screenplay written by you, and what was your attraction to the Cole Younger and Jesse James bank robbery? Well, you know, I've forgotten exactly how I first came to the material, because, you know, it must be about more than 40 years ago that I started working on this. It took years let's see i you know i i i guess i wrote it and then it took about four or five years to get it made so it was sitting around for a while its origins are a little bit dim to me but i i was a you know history major at the university of chicago and what always bothered me about academic history was that uh it was much more about facts or quote, carefully researched and footnoted historical incidents. Uh, the footnotes usually referred to some stiff, unhuman or inhuman events in, in people's lives, and there was something that always struck me as terribly wrong about American or, in general, academic uh, history. So I, I guess I somewhere came across the... Um, you know, the, the James and Younger thing. And I, you know, was reading other, uh, I, I was interested in the American West. And of course, from my generation, you know, grew up with Westerns, but they, they always seemed to have, you know, sort of the sacrosanct quality to them and didn't really sort of have the playfulness that, if you will, the pulp <laughs> novels and the pulp fiction that was coming out about the West <clears throat> really had. You know, there was there had been other Jesse James films and, you know, Frank James and so forth, and they were always, you know, generally making the boys out to be total heroes. Somewhere in the, in the mix of all of that, I guess I just started examining all of the, uh, you know, the myths and so forth about the James Gang and sort of centered on Great Northfield, Minnesota Raid, which was, to me, you know, really the last last great ride of Cole Younger and just something that, you know, I thought, how can I get inside of these, the boys and the gang and the, you know, try to get some of the exuberance and the spirit that they might have had and, and examining the characters, you know, what were the competitive things between Cole Younger and, and Jesse James, who went on, you know, after the raid, Jesse James sort of became more and more famous. 
But up until that point, it was Cole Younger was sort of the leader of the group. So, you know, that, that was sort of my jumping off spot was where, where were the, quote, human beings in history and how can we create human beings without just making them melodramatic and lacking in the everyday fun and stupidity of everyday life? So, you know, I could go on and on, but I think that, <laughs> that was sort of my, uh, you know, where I began uh, thinking about all of this. Minnesota Raid was released by Universal Pictures, and I'm curious, you were a part of the Universal Studios Young Directors Program. And wow, you really know your stuff, don't you? <laughs> thank you. I, I do research. <laughs> oh, man. And could you discuss what it was like working in that program? Well, you know, it was, you know I had done a couple of independent movies in Chicago and came out, you know, neither of them made much money really or any money and so we sort of went down to LA and um, got a, a you know they there was a guy named Ned Tannen who had a sort of a small program and he hired about five young guys I think I was making 175 bucks a week which I was grateful for and you know other other guys who didn't get into it, I remember running into a guy who had a kind of a dirty coffee stained kind of an outline for a movie in his pocket, and it was called Easy Rider, and that was Dennis Hopper, and he didn't make it into the program with Easy Rider, uh, which was made a couple of years later. So, uh, you know, it was I never got to really make a movie under that program. I, it lasted about six months, and I uh, it was sort of uh, unceremoniously let go but right at that point another guy at Universal named Jennings Lang happened to see my Chicago movies and sort of pulled me over into his department he liked what I was doing he was sort of a wild man I mean there's a whole Jennings Lang story to be told about you know he was the guy do you know that story about him being shot yeah, yeah right. you know all of that yeah so uh, uh, you know uh, so I went over and worked uh, for Jennings and right away you know very soon after I got there I started writing Great Northfield Minnesota Raid and it sat around for about four years I never got a movie made uh, at Universal but somehow they kept renewing my option and you know, and then one day Jennings showed it to Cliff Robertson, who just won the Oscar, and little by little, they, it's, it got going. You know, we were able to make it for under a million dollars, and it sort of slipped under the radar. Universal didn't really know that, I mean, the people above Jennings didn't really know the film had been made. It was sort of made for a budget for, you know, that movies for television were made for back then. The Great Northfield, Minnesota Raid, it holds up incredibly well, and even though it takes place in 1876 and was released in 1972, right. it deals with corrupt politicians and crooked bankers. And I'm curious, have you reflected about the movie, how many things have changes have happened, but some things stay the same? <laughs> I know. Isn't it funny how, uh, you, know, that, uh, you know, that urge for... Uh, you know, whatever it is, that organic urge for 
you know, more and more wealth, which, you know, motivates not only the townspeople, but, of course, the James gang, too. You know, it's, uh, you know, they sort of, uh, uh, you know, compete with each other in, in unscrupulousness in the desire to sort of go forward and hell be damned you know there's a lot of bloodshed in, in, all around them and uh and yet everything sort of as you say uh every everybody gets killed but everything uh, but everything remains the same and uh you know as you probably now that I know how much you've read on this subject, you've probably read all of the notes that I uh, uh, was, uh, you know, put out at the time about it really being a Midwestern rather than a Western, and that uh, it was really, you know, this wasn't the, uh, the searchers, the John Wayne, you know, the vast John Ford landscapes and so forth. This was, you know, something that sort of took place in, you know the back streets, the back alleys of Missouri, Missouri, and led the guys up to a town rapidly going into the 20th century. With you know not only with trains, but with those combine, those machines that r- ran across the landscape. People are busy playing baseball and uh, and participating in America's great pastime of shooting, and and everybody's out to make a buck. And that was sort of the way it was, and uh, as you're implying, the way it is, the way it still is. <laughs> There's a wonderful moment in the movie where Jesse James, played by Robert Duvall, gets a vision about a bank in Northfield, and I, it's a favorite scene of mine. Do you remember the direction you gave Mr. Duvall, or did you talk about the, how did you talk discuss the scene with Mr. Duvall? Yeah, well, you know, I was lucky to you know have Bobby Duvall. Uh, he'd only really done you know smaller parts that i'd seen him in i think he had uh, you know been in rain people francis's movie but you know generally was you know not certainly known as a you know a, a leading actor uh, at, at the time and you know there is the scene uh, you know takes place it begins in a very tight shot of uh, Duval sort of laughing at something and widens out to this. I'm, I haven't seen the film in all, you know pretty much all these years, but widens out to show two men sitting side by side with a little beam of light across their faces, and they're sort of talk talking. And Jesse James is sort of mumbling about you know you know how history the war didn't turn out the way they wanted, and then at some point he spits between his legs, and Lo and behold, they're in an outhouse, uh, a two-seater, the two brothers, Jesse and Frank James, sitting side by side. And when he reaches for some paper on the wall, uh, hanging on a peg or something, uh, he just happens to read, you know, it's some outtakes from a newspaper or a magazine. Northfield Raid, biggest bank west of the Mississippi, and he uses it to, if I may say, wipe his ass. <laughs> but that is the genesis of the whole plot of the whole story. The whole raid comes by, uh, you know, by chance, by circumstance, by, and you might say, where do creative people get their ideas? <laughs> and if Jesse James was a creative guy, maybe he got it there. The problem was <clears throat> when we first. The first screening of the movie was in, I think it was, it was either Phoenix, I think it was Phoenix, yeah, 
and was only there because Lou Wasserman, who was head of Universal, was going out to screen a Paul Newman movie in Tucson, and he said, hey, we need another movie, we're going to be in that area, what do we got? And Jennings said, what about this movie? It wasn't really finished, we just had a temp track on, and he said, okay, that'll do, you know, let's take it, and you know, not knowing that the movie was in its time sort of the anti-Barry Goldwater movie, if you will, the movie that was sort of making, uh, you know, taking on a lot of American iconography and, and so forth. And we uh, previewed it in a shopping center right next to the Goldwater department store. And when that scene, the outhouse scene, came on right at the beginning of the film, suddenly a, a baby started screaming in the audience and the whole I mean the whole place could not have been more uncomfortable for me uh, a howling baby an off-color scene a western unlike you know the west uh, a western that that audience in particular was used to seeing in a shopping shopping mall so the film got relegated to a few theaters after that. <laughs> Never got, uh, you know, and, and, and we just had a temp music track on at the time, which was sort of based in large part on Bob Dylan's Nashville Skyline. And uh, as Wasserman said, uh, get rid of that shit music and put some real music up there. <laughs> So uh, I was in I was in trouble. I was a young guy, you know. I, I was depending on my 175 buck week salary, and um, so I, the, you know, the word came down from on high. But uh, it's nice to be talking to you 40 years later. <laughs> but I'm still wearing that that bulletproof vest that Cole Younger had. Oh, really? No. <laughs> I found it helpful in Hollywood. <laughs> uh, okay, at the beginning of Northfield and the White Dawn, each movie starts with the documentary footage you created for the movie, but in right. the unbearable lightness of being and the right stuff, you incorporated actual documentary footage with your actors. Could you discuss your fondness for using documentary uh, to help tell yeah. story? You're too much. Have you been talking to Nicole Kidman? Uh, no, no, sir. <laughs> she lives in really? Nashville, though. <laughs> I know she's. You know she's there. You know, get her, tell her to come in and look at the movie and check out a couple of books. Uh, <laughs> she's great. I love Nicole. We just work together. But you know, Hemingway and Gellhorn is you know takes exactly what you're talking about, and you know I've always had a penchant and a fondness for you know, black and white and trying to make something out of that footage. And we did it in, uh, you know, to a, well, not only in the right stuff, using found footage and stuff to a much greater degree than people ever realized at the time. But in the unbearable lightness of being, there was all that existent footage of the Russian invasion. And we, at the time, had to go in and in Lyon in France and fortunately... Peter, you know, my, my producer's son, was able to find some Russian tanks in France that were exactly like the Russians used in the invasion. And we went to Lyon, and we had to use, you know, 400 extras running around and matching them to, you know, carefully through storyboards and everything to, you know, essentially or, or you know, essentially to the footage that existed from 20 years earlier. 
And then Walter Murch, my editor, and I, you know, scratched the film up and made, you know, made a blend, sort of an editing mix master of historical events. But now, in Hemingway and Gellhorn, we have gone into the past and with a lot of, you know, techniques that were not available in those days, been able to expand on that and, and actually nest our people into you know, Nicole Kidman and uh, Clive Owen into Spain, into the past, into China, into, uh, you know, all the places that Hemingway and Gellhorn visited. So, you know, I've, I've had this fascination uh, with those techniques. But, uh, you know, so speaking about great, I'm just jumping here about great Northfield, Minnesota, Ray, that the beginning was actually all black and white, but when the studio, and, and it was shot with an old hand crank camera that we got out of a museum. So we had to crank it by hand, and Bruce Surtees uh, was trying to approximate the look of those old films. And we put black and white film in, and we created you know, a black and white prologue to give the history of the gang. Well, when... The studio saw the movie. They said, you should have shot it in color. Then, you know, we would have had the option to go color or black and white. And I said, well, that's why I shot it in black and white. (laughs) (laughs) And I sort of laughed, and they sort of didn't laugh. And that's why um, there's, like, colored maps put over some of the black and white footage. There's an attempt to give it tint and tone because they said back in those days you put this thing on television and people are going to turn it off the minute they see black and white so we want color at the beginning so (laughs) there's uh you know underneath uh, you know the kind of tints color tints and so forth there was my black and white hand crank prologue to the movie while we're on the topic of documentation, and Henry and June, you recreated Bryce Eyes taking some of his most oh, memorable man. photographs. Did you use his photography to help the visual look? Oh of man, you are too much. You are, I mean, incredible. Yeah, sure. And you know, Bryce's wife was uh, an advisor on the film, but yeah, we took the Bryce photos and and really tried to to a large extent, uh, you know, recreate them within our little studio in Paris. And then we even, you know, he took them as inspiration. There's a scene where Uma Thurman and Maria de de Medeiros were uh, sort of going to meet outside at night. And I just told the guy, you know, instead of making a big street set, all that I want is a it's a, a wall like in this Versailles photograph and with a couple of streetlights and then a couple of the, the gendarmes riding by on a bicycle. A very simple set, but inspired totally by Versailles. And, yeah, and Versailles was a friend of Henry Miller's. And, you know, I don't know, the film is just... It's fun making films where you not only have a visual inspiration, but in the case of Henry and June, I had known Henry Miller and Anna Isnin, and you know they were people that I, who you know, I somehow my paths had crossed with them, and I was able to, you know, make make a film about them, which was thrilling, really. 
I know you were the original director on The Outlaw Josie Wales. My question is, how much of the movie had you already filmed? What percentage is yours? Well, I've never seen the movie, so, you know, that I, it's hard for me to say. I, I was there a couple of weeks. I, I don't remember how many, and we came to, uh, I guess we came to a parting of the, uh, the ways, and it's an area that's hard to go back into but you know I'd written I'd written the whole script uh, and done all of the sets and done all the costumes and all of the casting and then someone else finished it (laughs) 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 and uh, I wonder what happened to that guy yeah (laughs) the reason why I've just read so many legends that like like 80% of the movie is yours and I'm just curious I, I don't know I really haven't seen it Okay. Uh, you know, I, I just, it was painful, and, you know, again, I, you know, we came back, um, uh, you know, San Francisco, our little apartment in San Francisco, uh, unemployed, unemployed once again. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, uh, it's a tough business. And aside from, uh, you know, I, I've been lucky enough to keep going, finding friends or people who wanted to keep making movies and every few years I've been lucky enough to make a movie without really going down to LA much I you know I really don't think I've been there in about six years I might have gone I'm trying to think one day down and back within those you know Rose was sick for those years and so forth but I've you know been able to make a lot of movies up in San Francisco or a fair number and and Hemingway and Gellhorn was shot totally in San Francisco you know we didn't you know we shot China we shot Finland we shot Spain we shot Key West we shot everything in the environs of San Francisco with my friends and I count Nicole as my great friend now and and everybody was here. Keith Keith Urban was here. Everybody was, uh, you know, hanging out. And we just, you know, that's the way I, I, I like to make movies. I mean, in a way, we're, we're, you know, I like to make movies like the James and Younger gang. Um, um, you know, hopefully I'm more Cole Younger than Jesse James. But, uh, you know, uh, there's something exciting about getting everybody together and getting uh, finding an idea hanging on a peg somewhere on the wall and making a movie. (laughs) In several of your movies, like The Unbearable Likeness of Being, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Henry and June, Quills, The Wanderers, uh, you deal with characters who are living in a repressive time and they struggle to break free. I was just curious, what's your interest in that theme? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I well, I, you know, I like that sense. Uh, you know, I think Kundera talked about you know the trap that life has become or can become. You know, in a way, sort of that Kafkaesque world where uh, you know a, a, a person trying to operate with sort of in a reasonable way is faced with a kind of absurdities or violence at every every turn, and that. Especially if it's a, if it's somebody trying to be creative, that interests me. How people behave. I mean, the right stuff, of course, is is another thing. But Tom Wolfe taking Hemingway's line really, 
which is what the right stuff was based upon, grace under pressure. How do people behave? And that, that's what, what interested me in the right stuff and Chuck Yeager, you know, was a guy who right at the beginning, you know, just, you know, he didn't really care about the money. He just wanted to count me in. And that's, that interests me. You know, people who, you know, want to do something, whatever the endeavor, whether it's writing or breaking the sound barrier or, or being a brain surgeon or whatever, just are doing it for reasons they may not even know about, but which are inside of them. Sometimes you don't even, you know, you don't define the reason. You don't think about the overview. You just think about, I guess like like kids, you know, you just, my little grandson, Tavio, just wakes up every day, he's 11, and it's like, man, what am I going to do today? I'm, there's so many things. He just, Peter just bought him a guitar the other day, and, and he just said, I think this is the best day of my life. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that's, uh, I love that. And that's, uh, and that's hopefully, uh, you know, when we make a movie that people come to the set with that kind of, you know, that, that thrill that you have as a kid where you, man, the adrenaline is just pumping and you just say, oh, boy, this is, you know, let's put on a show, <laughs> to quote Mickey Rooney. In doing research, I've read you were in a gang in the 50s, and when you made The Wonders, did you bring any of your own personal stories to the movie? Yeah, well, I, I, that's interesting, too. I mean, I wasn't a gang, exactly. I mean, there were, you know, this was back in sort of the early 50s, and everybody in my high school and, and in the neighborhood wore, you wore those colored jackets and we thought we were really tough guys and, you know, sort of were semi-greasers and walked around with our hair, you know, in DAs and uh, thought, except when a really tough gang walked into the pizza parlor, we all uh, immediately assumed the pose of wimps and really nice guys. <laughs> and just, you know, but, the, you know, the, uh, this was, you know, not long after the war and, and America had a, uh, you know, there was a, it was a different kind of roughness. There weren't guns involved. Uh, I mean, I saw a gun or two, but it was, you know, it was just everybody was, uh, you know, wasn't like, you know, modern gangs, or, you know, or gangs that, you know, started years later, which were really scary and really violent. You know, this was more more like the gangs and the Wanderers. And, uh, you know, so when it came to adapting Richard Price's uh, uh, story, which actually, you know, uh, Peter, I think, was 11 at the time when he read it, and he said to Rose and me, you know, I th- you guys should make a movie out of this. <laughs> and Rose said, uh, listen, started listening to that music, Wanderers by Dion, and so for the Wanderer, and said, okay, you know, let's make it. So we spent years and years trying to, you know, make that movie but you know it's not gangs in the sense that gangs are gangs now i mean we really uh, there was a kind of uh, exuberance and thrill and yeah so i guess you know my experience on the streets of chicago translated even though that was a few years later uh, uh 60 
two or three when the Wanderers was set, but yeah, it had a, a feeling about a lot of the uh, experiences that I'd gone through that we sort of blended into Richard Price's story. It, it was really his book was really a bunch of short stories, and we sort of combined it into one overall one overall story, which, like a number of films, has uh, at the end gets everyone to San Francisco or gets the survivors, the two guys, go off to uh, San Francisco. And uh, I guess I was expressing my, my love for the city I live in, you know. Henry Mancini wrote the music for The White Dawn, and on the audio commentary, you told a story about the Eskimo woman humming a song, and Mancini wrote music for the movie based on the song. Was right. that was it? Was it Mancini or you who came up with the idea of doing that? Well, I'm sorry. Did you say was it Mancini? No, I was just saying, was it you or Mancini that the inspiration? Hey, we should write a score. Using that woman's uh, well, uh Let's see. Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, it was in a combination with uh, between us. I, I don't remember exactly, but you know that song. Sort of, you may have read that the Eskimos were great improvisers. So I had said through our translator, could this older woman? sing a traditional Inuit song and and you know it's not, they were so good that I, and I essentially before I finished the sentence I said he was sort of translating and even before I finished she started singing you know so I mean they were they were right there so she sang that that little melodic song and later somebody translated for me uh, an Eskimo saying uh, it was something like, this man has asked me to sing a song, and now I'm singing a song for him. And, you know, it was just sort of, she was just rattling on with an ancient melody. But as with a number of things in The White Dawn, we sort of took liberties with the subtitling. <laughs> so uh, we, you know, the, if, if I forgot if I subtitled a song, but it certainly didn't have those words to it. And then when... We did the right stuff, and uh, John Glenn is orbiting, uh, gets into orbit. We were looking for a song that could evoke that sense of travel and wonder that you know was worthy of his, you know, the first man to really orbit the Earth. And I, we. You know, Conti, who actually won an Oscar for his score, couldn't come up with something I liked. So I just said, we're going to use Mancini's score from The White Dawn. And that is the score of John Glenn circling the earth is that song that a little Eskimo 89-year-old Eskimo woman created <laughs> up in the Arctic. It became that same song written by, you know, uh, uh, orchestrated by Mancini, you know, years later for man's greatest adventure at, uh, at that point. So I love that, you know, the specific small thing becoming the grand thing.
One of the stars of White Dawn, Warren Oates, is a uh, favorite actor of ours around here. Uh, do you have any uh, good stories about him? Oh, yeah, Warren. Oh, man, Warren was was great. He was a, a wild guy. <laughs> you know, Warren, was, you know, he was known to take a nip uh, here and there, and uh, he was a funny guy because we would have... Somehow, you know, we were way up in the Arctic, and the plane only came a couple of times a week with stuff. But Warren always got his Wall Street Journal and uh, a little bit of, I don't know what, what you would call it. I, I guess the generic term would be drugs. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he would sit there, uh, you know, with a little booze and a little... You know, a little feel-good stuff. Reading the Wall Street Journal, dressed in his Eskimo-made gear, in the, you know, up on a snowdrift in the Arctic. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, no, it was. We, we just had a wild time with the Eskimos, or Inuit is the correct word now for it. And uh, you know, Warren could get a little grumpy at times. His his then wife came up and stayed for about a month and. And she said she was leaving, and the whole crew tried to raise money to keep her around because he was behaving so well while she was there. <laughs> but yeah, he was a smart guy, and he shot a lot. of He had a little camera. I mean, now everyone has those cameras, but somewhere Warren probably made a little movie. I never did see it of you know stuff that we were doing up there. You mentioned earlier that you met both Henry Miller and Annalise Nan, and I also read she was a mentor to you. Could you talk about a little bit about meeting them? And well, Miller, I I just loved even you know when I was in college. What I loved about him was again this goes back to you know I was somewhat of an academic, I guess, or headed towards being an academic, but I wasn't didn't like the academic world really and and Miller was an autodidact he was uh, a man who you know I think well, he may not have been the great American novelist but he was certainly the great uh, American inspirer he he loved literature he loved books he loved he loved life he loved the zest of life he loved he was enthusiastic about uh, everything from food to naturally to sex and and was a funny guy and those books were not available i mean his main books were not really available in the states and so when we you know traveled around europe and so forth i i had i had met miller you know at some point there rose and i went down i actually it's before we went to europe i i'd read some his books had been oh that's right I had hitchhiked around Europe and got his books which you had to smuggle back into the states and uh, even while I was at law school I would be in the library reading Tropic of Cancer rather than studying torts you know and and then uh, when uh, Rose and I you know I've gone back to the University of Chicago for a master's and we decided to leave that and drive out to California and the first thing that Rose and I did was drop Peter with an uncle of mine and drive down to Big Sur and we ended up spending a, a night 
the day, a whole day and a night with Henry Miller drinking and talking and Rose and I, he wanted us to stay overnight but we went and slept on the beach at Big Sur and got roused, you know, roused by cops through, I guess we weren't supposed to do that but you know, there was, it was California, it was great, Henry Miller, we had so much fun with him and he told me, I, you know, Anaisen was more of a you know, not that well known at the time, but in through his writings, we had some insight into these great journals. He said they were going to be the greatest thing once they were allowed to be published. And so I met Anaisen back in Chicago when I was at the University of Chicago and spent a day with her, partly because I knew Henry Miller, and we just, she was presenting some films by a filmmaker named Ian Hugo, who was a um, photomontage abstract filmmaker at the time. And none of us knew that that was Hugo, her husband. She had a husband on the East Coast and then later, uh, at the same time, a husband on the West Coast. That's another story. <laughs> but uh, who was a wonderful guy who really gave us, uh, you know, the rights to um, Henry and June, uh, the guy on the West Coast. But I spent a whole day with her and Anais and from my telling her, I have not I made a movie yet, but I was planning on it. And what I told her, my ideas, she said, you've got to make movies. And, you know, she couldn't have been more supportive and loved the sense of what I was trying to do and really encouraged me and it was great to eventually be able to make a movie about somebody who you know had done those things uh, and somebody who'd been influential in my making movies at all. And my last question I, you've mentioned it before about Hemingway and Gilhorn can you yeah. tell us something about it and it's for HBO isn't it? Yeah it's HBO it's well uh, Hemingway, you know, was at four wives, essentially, and the third one was Martha Gellhorn, who, by all accounts, was by far the most beautiful uh, of all his wives and the only woman who really left Hemingway. And she, you know, I'm hoping more and more people will read Martha Gellhorn's writing. She was, uh, a lot of people think, the greatest of all war correspondents, much better than Hemingway. But she, you know, met him one day. She was already, she'd already written a novel. She just happened to walk into Sloppy Joe's Bar in Key West. Uh, they sort of hit it off. They went to Spain. They started their affair. They spent five years together. And, you know, Hemingway's the great writer. He leaves his wife Pauline for her, but he's the great writer, and there's something called that, uh, you know, people have interpreted as being the Hemingway Code, that Hemingway Code of Behavior, which, as I say, has something to do with the right stuff. Grace under pressure, behavior, uh, yeah, the uh, economy of style, that kind of the guy wrote like Hemingway. I mean, you know, in, in retrospect, I mean, that Hemingway influenced all writers virtually uh, that came after him. He was a, a marvelous stylist and stuff. But he wasn't fully able to live up to the Hemingway code, and Martha Gellhorn was. She became 
you know, long after she left Hemingway and Hemingway died, she was, you know, well into her 80s going all over the world, covering all the world's trouble spots and really uh, was way far ahead of her time in terms of independence and and um, so forth. So some uh, writer said uh, she was like the real-life Lauren Bacall, only better looking and smarter, <laughs> which uh, I didn't know anyone was better looking and smarter than Lauren Bacall. But, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, and uh, so I met, you know, Nicole sort of by chance uh, uh, one day, and she knew I was, you know, she knew my work, and she just said, in her way, I want to w- work with you. What are you doing? And I said, I'm, I'm developing. We'd spent years developing this. I'm, I'm developing something called uh, Hemingway and Gellhorn for HBO. And we left it at that. And two days later, she called me and said, uh, she said, I've just read the script and I want to do it. I'm in. And nobody was supposed to read that script. I don't know how she got a hold of it. It was, uh, you know, but she did. And, you know, we eventually made it and she's one of the greatest living actors she's fantastic and uh you know that if, if she comes to your library tell her tell her i love her <laughs> i'll do that <laughs> yeah i mean she's she's so good she's phenomenal really and you know she i mean she's won an oscar and you know nominated and done all of that kind of stuff but who knew how good she was? You know, when you work with her, you're you're you know really in awe. I mean, everybody was. Everybody was in awe of her. I would like to thank Philip Kaufman for granting the interview. So remember, come to the Nashville Public Library at 615 Church Street in the main auditorium to see the Great Norseville, Minnesota Raid. It will be showing Saturday, May 12th at 2 p.m. And remember, come see it on the big screen. Today's music is The Wanderer by Dion. <laughs>